0: Oh, baby. Baby, 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 baby. (laughs) Can anyone name that movie? What line that movie's from? It's a Reese Witherspoon film? Anybody? It's from Walk the Line. I actually really love that movie. And I know you're all surprised I'm not singing at you today. I considered doing a rendition of Britney Spears' Hit Me Baby One More Time. But... When I'm animating the word baby in my head, Reese beats Britney to the punch. Hello everyone. Welcome to The Selfie Life, where we are reviewing topics that are covered on the MCAT. My name is Nikayla, and today we are going to be reviewing embryogenesis. And I'm not going to lie to you. It is complex. Probably as complex, if not more so, than the female reproductive system. But I mean, come on, does anyone out there expect growing babies to be easy? But I am going to try to do my best to break it down and tie it all together. I mean, growing human babies kind of blows my mind. I mean, growing any type of baby is crazy, but human babies are just next level. How cells are this essentially smart to pull this off? It's just another reason why I love science. It's just so incredibly cool. So let's jump in and just start with the basics. What is embryogenesis? Embryogenesis is the formation and development of the embryo in the first eight weeks after fertilization. And it really is kind of a whirlwind of mitotic activity and cell differentiation, which makes sense because you are taking a single-celled organism into an organism that is developing brains and intestines and limbs and eyelashes. Okay, let's be honest, at the end of embryogenesis, it is basically a ball of cells with tubes, but they will develop into the guts and brains and limbs and all that stuff. So without further ado, let's get into embryogenesis. Actually, there is some more ado. This episode may contain some sexual health material, It is really more of a review of Embryogenesis, but there might be some flashback material from the previous two episodes. Okay, pop quiz time. You didn't know that you'd be starting this episode with a pop quiz, did you? It's okay, this is one pop quiz you're going to ace, because I'm grading and I make the rules. Question one. A spike in what hormone causes ovulation? <laughs> Trick question. There's two hormones, LH and FSH. Follow-up. Which surge point out of LH and FSH was highest and why? The LH surge was greater because the inhibin being produced is already inhibiting the FSH. Okay. So ovulation of a secondary oocyte has occurred. Like, just barely occurred. Here's your question. The egg is arrested right now in what phase? Metaphase 2. If you are having any trouble with these concepts, just use this as an informative experience that is showing you where you can improve. You could also just go back and listen to the last few episodes for a helpful tune-up. Okay. Okay back to the egg. The egg has been swept up by the fimbriae, and now it is in the fallopian tube, minding its own business, hanging out in the ampulla, which is the widest part of the fallopian tube, and it's also a super common spot for fertilization. And along comes this sperm. Now, egg cells are about 10,000 times larger than the sperm, so there is a very large size difference. And this is where the real magic happens. And by real magic, I mean science. Do you remember that part of the sperm that I called the beanie? It's on the top of the sperm, like the head of it. Do you remember what that's called? The acrosome. When the acrosome binds to the oocyte, it releases some special enzymes that allow it to penetrate the corona radiata and zona pellucida. The first sperm to the egg creates a special tube called an acrosomal apparatus, which penetrates the cell membrane so that the pronucleus can enter the oocyte. Once the oocyte has completed meiosis two. So basically, it needs a tunnel. The sperm needs a tunnel to give its genetic material to the egg. Okay, you guys, right here, I imagine the sperm is basically using its penis to put its genetic material into the egg. After you have sex, the egg and sperm basically have to do the same song and dance. So the penis, in this case, is the acrosomal apparatus. After the sperm has penetrated the membranes, something called a cortical reaction happens. Now for a few more root words here, because, you know, I love root words. Actually, when I was a kid, I really wanted my brother and I to learn Latin so that we could talk about anything anywhere and basically nobody would be able to understand us, especially our parents. That's a strange little kid that dreamed of learning dead languages and my favorite food was aubergine. (laughs) I'm serious, it was, and not much has changed. Anyway, cortico actually means bark, like the bark of a tree or shell in Latin. So the cortical reaction is what happens when the sperm is able to get through the shell of the egg, which would be the two layers from the external to the internal, corona radiata and zona pellucida. There are other layers, but these seem to be the ones we need to be familiar with for the general anatomy and physiology on the MCAT. I don't know if you have seen the illustrated images of the egg cell, but to me, the egg cell always kind of looked like the sun drawings I did in elementary school with all the rays coming off, you know, like the sunglass with all the rays and wearing the sunglasses and smiling. The rays that are sticking out is the corona radiata. The radiata means spoke and or ray in Latin, and it is really just like the cell's crown. So the name really paints an image in my brain. When you hear corona radiata, think of those elementary school kid drawings of suns. This image will also help you keep the layer straight since those rays are on the outside and the corona radiata is also on the outside. Back to the cortical reaction. The cortical reaction is actually, it's pretty cool. A bunch of calcium is released, which depolarizes the membrane of the ovum. A quick reminder that depolarization is when there is an electrical shift within the cell. So basically, all of this calcium, which has a positive charge, is released from these pockets, and the cell becomes less negative because of all the positive calcium that was released. This reaction prevents polyspermy, which just means fertilization by multiple sperm. The increased calcium also increases the metabolic rate of this new little zygote. And now this zygote needs to implant in the uterus or the baby box, if you will. But there are a few things that happen to the zygote as it travels from the ampulla to the uterus. The zygote will start undergoing rapid mitotic division without growth, which is known as cleavage. Once this cleavage starts, the zygote can now officially be called an embryo. Cleavage is splitting without growth. This happens in the embryo because it has to divide so fast, it doesn't have the time to grow. So the embryo is doing all of these quick cleavages. There are two types of cleavage, indeterminate cleavage and determinate cleavage. The difference is completely contained in the names. Determinate cleavage means essentially that the cell's fates are set. These cells differentiate into already determined types of cells indeterminate cleavage means that the cells can still develop into complete organisms. In fact, this is how you can get monozygotic twins. Monozygotic, meaning one zygote, is formed and then it is split so there are going to be two identical twins. Monozygotic twins are one egg fertilized by one sperm that then splits and implants. Get it? Monozygotic, one zygote. Does anyone know the name for the other type of twin? I know someone out there is being a smart aleck, and they said non-identical twins, which is correct, but doctors call this dizygotic or fraternal twins. Dizygotic because two different eggs are fertilized by two different sperm, thus two zygotes. So if you are a dizygotic twin, you share no more genetic information than regular siblings share. Back to the embryo. Once the embryo has divided 16 times, it really starts to look like a mulberry, and it's called a morula. I'm going to be honest here. I know that this stage is called a morula because it looks like a mulberry, but I didn't know what a mulberry looked like, so I googled it. A mulberry looks like a mix kind of between a raspberry and a blackberry, and I don't think I've ever had anything with mulberry in it. I assume that they probably make good pies. So after a morula is formed, the little berry, the morula, not the fruit berry, the zygote berry, now goes through what is called blastulation to form a blastula. So for me, I think of a blastula like one of those old school gumballs that is hollow on the inside. A blastula is a hollow ball of cells with fluid on the inside. The inner cavity is called a blastosol Sol means hollow in Greek, so blastosol means hollow bud, which is exactly what this little guy is. Also, you could just think of it as a blasted out cell, blastosol. Really quick, we're going to run down the list of stages and names from zygote to blastula. So we had zygote, embryo, morula, blastula, After blastula, we're going to move on to blastocyst. The blastula is a hollow ball and the blastocyst is what it is called once a few different layers have formed. These layers are trophoblasts and inner cell mass. The trophoblasts are on the outside and the cluster of cells on the inside are called the inner cell mass. One more time, the cells that make up the outside or the gum part, if we're sticking with the gumball analogy, the outside layer is called trophoblast. The trophoblast is the outside layer that surrounds the blastosol. Tropho means nourish, like food, which makes sense because the outer layer will become part of the placenta, which is needed to nourish and grow the fetus. Also, tropho kind of sounds like trough, the thing that you use to feed your animals, nourish your animals. That might help you (laughs) remember the outer layer name. In blastocysts, there is another important small clump of cells on the inside called the inner cell mass. The inner cell mass cells have clustered so tight together that they leave a cavity on the other end. It's like when you're trying to catch baby animals and they all cluster away from you. Let's go with bunnies. Imagine this. You walk into a circular enclosure. The fence on the outside is the trophoblasts and the bunnies are huddling on the other side, cowering from you. So the inner cell mass and you are hanging out in the hollow area, which is called the blastosol. So now this is no longer looking like a mulberry, and it is no longer just a hollow shell of cells. It has graduated from a blastula to a blastocyst. I put a stick figure drawing of this in the notes, if you need extra visual, or you want to see how terrible my stick figure drawings are. I forgot to mention at the beginning of the episode that the script notes can be found on the website, SelfieLife.com. Back to the bunnies. So now you walk towards the bunnies and they fan out. And now there is a layer of bunnies in front of you to the side of you and behind you. They have formed a new cavity with you in the middle of this new cavity. This new cavity is called the amniotic cavity. Does this make sense? I might have just run this bunny scenario into the ground. Okay. Imagine this. You have a circle. There is a line that cuts halfway across the circle and lines the inside of half of the circle. The inner cell mass has hollowed out now, so there are two hollow areas. The one that is lined by the inner cell mass is now called the amniotic cavity, and the other cavity is still called the blastosol. The inner cell mass differentiates even more, and the cells closest to the blastosol side are called hypoblasts, and the cells right above it are called epiblasts. You guys, super boiled down, it's a circle that has two layers down the middle, the hypoblast and epiblast. The hypoblast and epiblast layers come from the inner cell mass. I have further explanation and pictures in the notes if you need more on that. I did spend quite a bit of time on those because they are important, because the hypoblast and epiblast are called the bilaminar disc, and the bilaminar disc is what will give rise to the three germ layers, which are a really high yield topic on the MCAT. So the bilaminar disc, two layers, top layer, epiblast, epi as in over, bottom layer, hypoblast, hypo, under. This is the bilaminar disc. The bilaminar disc is like a stack of two pancakes that are perma-stuck together. And then let's say you pour one line of maple syrup on the top pancake. You start just before the midpoint and draw the line to the edge so the line is not quite half the diameter of your pancakes. This weird little streak thing happens along the middle of the epiblast layer. This is the permitive streak which come on, it's, it's kind of a great name, primitive streak. It's not in Latin or Greek, it's basic and it's one of the primary stages in development. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a quick outline of gastrulation and neurulation, just so you can kind of get a big picture. Don't worry, I will go into more depth, but I think a general outline here is helpful because embryogenesis can be a little dense. So the primitive streak marks the beginning of gastrulation. The primitive streak marks the area where the epiblast cells will start moving. The cells along the primitive streak burrow down in between the epiblast and hypoblast layers, differentiating until there are three layers. This formation of three layers is called gastrulation. Now that there are three layers, it's the trilaminar disc, aka the germ layers. The top is the ectoderm, the middle is the mesoderm, and the bottom is the endoderm. Knowing these three layers is important. They always seem to pop up on the practice MCAT questions and doctors need to know this stuff anyway. So these will be important to know. Again, right now, we're just doing a general overview and we'll go into it later. After gastrulation, we have neuralation. So we are going to start neuralation with our three layers. What are the three layers? Do you remember? I know I said them like four seconds ago, but let's name them from the top to the bottom just for review. Ectoderm, mesoderm, endoderm. To me, they always looked like a hamburger when the professors were drawing them out. The top bun is the ectoderm, the mesoderm is the patty, and the endoderm is the bottom bun. Neuralation starts in the middle of the hamburger patty, so in the middle of the middle, aka middle of the mesoderm. At this location, there starts to be some differentiation of these cells, This little knot of cells is called the notochord. So let's remember that the notochord happens in the very middle of the middle. The notochord forms in the center of the mesoderm. The formation of the notochord is important because it causes a change in the ectoderm, which ultimately results in the neural tube. In the notes, I have a link for a YouTube video I found helpful. I wanted to introduce you to neuralation, but we are going to pause there. We will come back to it though. Because all of this is great, but none of these layer differentiations can happen if the embryo doesn't implant into the endometrial lining of the uterus. Do you know at what stage the embryo is in when implantation occurs? A blastocyst is what is implanted into the endometrial lining. So let's get into some detail about this. So the endometrial lining is proliferating and building up in preparation for implantation of an embryo. So the embryo is bouncing around and it ends up in a valley in the endometrial lining where it burrows in. Kind of like at the end of a really long day, (laughs) a.k.a. my yesterday. And you climb in bed and burrow into the blankets and it is just the best feeling ever. This is how I picture the little blastocyst, just really trying to burrow in and find the comfiest spot. Do you remember what the outermost layer of the blastocyst is called? The trophoblast. So the blastocyst has shed the zona pellucida before it implants. The trophoblast cells give rise to the chorion, which develops into the placenta. Now this next part I've always thought is really cool. The trophoblasts form these finger-like projections called chorionic villi. These chorionic villi are projections that go into the endometrium. I always think of it as clawing, like with really long crooked witch's fingers. The chorionic villi aren't actually witch's fingers, but they really are digging into the endometrium. And these microscopic projections are what will support the maternal fetal gas exchange. So these fingers are in the endometrial lining, and they are finding the little pockets of uterine blood and are joining with them. The blood isn't mixing. There is no direct exchange. The fetal blood will be separated by a thin layer of trophoblasts from the maternal blood. The gas exchange is really just wild. So the trophoblasts implant and send out these finger-like projections that will support the maternal fetal gas exchange. It will continue to grow until it takes up most of the uterus, and it is called the placenta. Now, while the placenta is still growing, the embryo is supported by the yolk sac. But let's rewind a little and talk about mama. What's going on with mama right now? What are her hormones up to? Now, if you will remember that in the female reproductive episode, we talked about the corpus luteum, which is what the ova's house is called after the ova has been ovulated. So it's what's left behind after the egg has left the ovary. Remember, the corpus luteum releases a bunch of hormones. I was going to just tell you what these hormones are, but I feel like this is a great pop quiz question. Okay, what are the three hormones the corpus luteum releases? Progesterone, inhibin, and estrogen. Follow-up question. What does each of these hormones do? And I know one of you is like, they do a plethora of things, but what do these hormones do in relation to the uterus? Start with progesterone. Progesterone is the progestation hormone, so it is maintaining the uterus for implantation. Progesterone is really hoping for little embryo. The high levels of progesterone also cause a negative feedback loop with the brain's hormones. Inhibit, inhibit inhibits. It inhibits FSH, so that the body is investing in the egg that it has in production and not getting ahead of itself and working on multiple eggs at once. It's not like a factory conveyor belt. I think of it like that I Love Lucy episode, the one where she is shoving chocolate in her face and can't keep up with the conveyor belt. Not our system. (laughs) We want quality over quantity. It wants to give all the attention to one egg at a time. There are exceptions, aka multiple births, but you get what I'm saying. Basically what I'm getting at is that inhibin is one of the hormones that makes this possible. If inhibin were to talk, it would say, hey, let's focus on finishing this one project before we move on to another project. Estrogen, estrogen helps regenerate the uterus after menses. But in this case, the egg was fertilized and the blastocyst is going to implant into the uterus. So what will happen with mom's hormones? The blastocyst will implant and secrete human chorionic gonadotropin, HCG. That chorionic sound a little familiar? It should. Remember how the chorionic villi stretch out their fingers and weave their way in to set up the placenta? The chorionic development is one of the first things the newly implanted embryo does. So it makes sense that it is also releasing human chorionic gonadotropin, HCG. See, it's not too bad. It all fits together. HCG is actually very chemically similar to LH. It's so similar that it can actually stimulate the LH receptors, and the corpus luteum is maintained. So instead of dying off and the levels of hormones decreasing until the GnRH once again starts the FSH and LH cycle over again, the corpus luteum is maintained by the HCG. So once you get pregnant, the corpus luteum hangs out for a little bit because the embryo is like, hey, hey you, you should stick around for a minute. I'll give you this HCG and the corpus and the corpus luteum is like, yeah, you know, might as well. And since the corpus luteum is sticking around, it does its thing and just keeps on releasing hormones. The corpus luteum keeps releasing estrogen and progesterone, so the HCG is really critical because it keeps the corpus luteum around and the corpus luteum releases progesterone and estrogen which maintain that uterine lining so that it isn't sloughed off, AKA no period. HCG keeps estrogen and progesterone so that we can keep our uterine lining healthy for the fetus. By the second trimester, the placenta is large enough that it can take over the progesterone and estrogen, so at this point, the HCG levels decline. These high levels of estrogen and progesterone that are being secreted by the placenta, they're now high enough to take care of the negative feedback loop so that gonadotropin-releasing hormone, GNRH, is still inhibited. Also, please note that the placenta is releasing hormones which makes it an endocrine organ. Side note, have you guys heard of the HCG diet? People take HCG and then they are on a super low calorie diet. I've heard, I don't know, I've heard that if they take a pregnancy test while on the diet, the pregnancy test will come back positive because a lot of pregnancy tests are looking for the presence of HCG. Quiz question. By the time that the blastocyst is ready to implant the endometrial lining will be under the influence of what hormone? Progesterone. Remember progestation. Follow-up question. What is producing the progesterone? The corpus luteum. Remember, We, we just talked about it like two minutes ago. What phase is the endometrium in? Remember the endometrium has those three stages. If progesterone is the main hormone, We know that we are in the secretatory phase. You got them all right, didn't you? You guys are freaking brilliant. If you were stuck, it's all good. Go give the Female Reproductive Podcast another listen for a little refresher. Okay, now let's get back to the embryo. Before I took us down that hormonal memory lane, we were talking about how the placenta is up and producing enough estrogen and progesterone and the yolk sac is what supports the embryo. The placenta is the most important extraembryonic structure, but there are other important structures, especially in the early phases when the placenta has not fully developed. So what are these extraembryonic membranes and what do they do? Also, they are extra embryonic membranes. So other than the embryo, what else is there? Let's draw a little picture in our head. Let's put our embryo in the middle. The first layer that surrounds it, draw a layer around it, is called the amnion, and it contains the amniotic fluid. The amnion is the extra embryonic membrane that surrounds the developing embryo. The amnion is filled with fluid and its main job is to serve as a shock absorber. It also helps regulate temperature. It's just, it's a really protective layer. Think bubble boy. The baby can inhale and exhale this fluid, but it doesn't get any oxygen from it. Here's a thought for you. The waste produced from this little embryo, they're also excreted into the fluid. So the fluid is really just circulating around. So this amnion layer starts out in early development surrounding the embryo. The embryo right now is more of a bean shape with the indent being at the embryo's belly button. Okay, so picture this, you have a bean. From the bean's belly button, there is a sac that completely surrounds and envelops the embryo. There are also two other structures that stick out. And at this early stage in the drawings, they kind of look like bunny ears. So you have bunny ears. And the bunny ears are the yolk sac and the allantois. One more time. You have a bean that is surrounded by a bubble that meets at the bean's belly button. At the belly button, you also have two bunny ears sticking out. These bunny ears are the yolk sac and the allantois. The yolk sac doesn't have a huge role, but a really cool fact about the yolk sac, I don't really think you need to know it for the MCAT, but you'll need to know it in medical school, is the fact that the yolk sac will form the embryo's first red blood cells. Actually, it goes yolk sac, then the liver, then the bone marrow. The other structure is the atlantus. The allantois and yolk sac will form the umbilical cord. The atlantus is involved in early fluid exchange between the yolk sac and the embryo. The fourth and final of the extra embryonic membranes is the chorion, which surrounds the entire system and it has some folds or villi, which result in the extra surface area. These villi ultimately absorb nutrients from the endometrium. Can you guys remember what villi we mentioned earlier? So one side, we have the chorionic villi, which are gonna be the embryonic portion of the placenta, and the other side is just called the chorion. Okay, let's go over that one more time, from the embryo out. Surrounding the embryo is the amnion. Then we have the yolk sac and the allantois. Ultimately, remnants of the yolk sac and allantois will form the umbilical cord, but it's mostly the allantois. Then, surrounding the entire thing is the chorion. The chorionic villi forms the embryonic portion of the placenta. I feel like a lot of these words we actually hear on the regular, except for the Atlantis. So how do we remember Atlantis? It kind of sounds like Atlantis. You know, Plato's lost city, or island. It's his lost island. The one that sank in a day and a night around like 9,600 BCE, and nobody really knows if it's a metaphor or real. Anyway, that island. Atlantis is wasted. The Atlantis will remove waste from the embryo. Waste like CO2, and it does this through the umbilical cord, which was formed by the Atlantis. Okay, so this episode is getting longer than I wanted, so I'm gonna split this episode in two. I'll call this episode Early Embryogenesis and in the next episode, we will finish up the embryogenesis review. In this episode, we talked about fertilization and the cortical reaction, types of twins, the zygote, the morula, the blastula, the blastosol. We also reviewed the development of the bilaminar disc and outlined what will be covered in gastrulation and neuralation. Friends, thank you for listening. Please rate, review and subscribe. Tell your fellow wannabe doctors about this podcast or even anyone else who's interested in the science and needs a quick review or to freshen up on the subject. You can follow me on Instagram at this c e l l f i e life and check out the script notes on the website. They go into more detail and have links to videos and pictures that I found super helpful. Do me a favor and practice some self-love and schedule a nap in your future, in your near future. And when you guys are getting all snuggled in, just be like, oh, I'm a blastocyst, getting all sorts of cozy. Study hard, friends. Bye.